Hello, welcome to chapter 8 in our series of lessons on Cambridge A-level biology. The topic of this chapter is transport in mammals. Transport in mammals. Introduction. The mammalian transport system is composed of structures that are involved in the transport of materials around the body of a mammal. It includes the blood, which is the transport fluid, the heart, which generates the force that drives blood around the body, and the blood vessels through which blood flows around the body. The mammalian circulatory system or the mammalian transport system is described as a closed double circulatory system. It's de described as closed because blood stays within the blood vessels and does not move out of the vessels. Rather, materials diffuse out of the blood and moves into the tissue fluid that surrounds the body cells so blood stays within the blood vessels and so it is called the sec this transport system is called closed then it's called double because for every circuit around the body blood passes through the heart twice so put the two together it's described as closed double circulatory system or closed double circulation when you look at um, the system of um, fish the transport system in fish it's described as a closed single circulation closed single circulation when you look at insects insects have an open circulatory system so mammalian system is described as a closed double circulatory system now let's talk about um the blood vessels we're going to start with the blood vessels we'll talk about the blood vessels the blood and then the heart so let's start with the blood vessels there are three major types of blood vessels found in mammals. You have arteries, veins, and capillaries. Arteries are designed to transport blood away from the heart. Veins are designed to transport blood towards the heart. And capillaries function as a site of exchange. Capillaries function as a site of exchange. Now, all arteries are designed to transport blood under high pressure. They have thick walls with tunica externa. The thick walls have three layers. The outermost layer is called the tunica externa, which contains numerous collagen fibers. Some elastic fibers too are present. And then after that is the tunica media, which is like the middle layer. It contains elastic fibers, collagen fibers, and smooth muscles. And then the innermost layer is called the tunica intima, which is composed of a single layer of endothelium, squamous epithelium cells. The closer an artery is to the heart, the greater the quantity of elastic fibers present in the tunica media of that artery. And this allows the wall of that artery to stretch and recoil as blood is pumped into it from the heart. And together with collagen, the elastic fibers work together with collagen to enable the arteries to withstand high pressure of blood flowing through them. As you move further away from the heart, the quantity of elastic fiber in the tunica media reduces. And the muscle tissue, smooth muscle tissue present, tends to increase. The muscle tissue allows the arteries to regulate the diameter of their lumen so as to vary the amount of blood flowing through them. So, in comparing arteries and veins, the lumen of arteries is relatively narrower or smaller compared to that of veins. So, talking about arteries, those are the key features of arteries. Now, veins. Veins have a relatively larger lumen. lumen. So talking about veins, veins have a relatively larger lumen compared to arteries. 
the walls are also composed of three layers you have the tunica external the tunica media and the tunica internal the tunica external is made up of mostly collagen fibers and the tunica media is thin and comprised of smooth muscles and elastic fibers blood flowing through the veins flows at low pressure and the veins usually contain valves within them to prevent backflow of blood many large veins are located many large veins are located between muscles especially veins within the legs and the arms they're located be between muscles so that when the muscles contract they help to squeeze blood upwards towards the heart so veins are designed to carry large volume of blood and they transport the blood towards there the large volume is accounted for by the large lumen and the transporting of blood towards the heart is facilitated by the presence of um, valves, valves which prevent backflow. Capillaries. Capillaries function as side of exchange of materials between blood and between the um, cells of the body. They have an approximate diameter of 8 micrometers and this allows them to extend into many tiny small spaces between body cells. Also, red blood cells are brought into close proximity to tissues for efficient diffusion of gases. As blood components and blood cells squeeze through, they flow slowly and this gives more time for materials to pass through. The walls of the capillaries are thin, one cell thick, just endothelium um, material, endothelial cells, one cell thick, and they contain numerous spores. There are numerous spores between the endothelial cells and these spores allow um, white blood cells and platelets to move out of the blood into the tissue fluid environment to perform various functions. White blood cells can move out of the blood into the tissue fluid environment to fight infectious agents. Platelets can also move out to help to contribute to the process of um, um, clotting. So capillaries form a network throughout body tissues and they are found practically everywhere. The only place where you don't find capillaries are in the cornea and then in some cartilage. So those are the um, features of the blood vessels. So let's talk about blood. Blood is a fluid tissue that is composed of two major parts, two major parts. You have the plasma, which is the fluid portion, that is 55%. And then you have the cellular component, the blood cells, which, is, um, which constitute 45% of the total blood volume. Now, talking about the plasma, the plasma comprises majorly of water, which serves as a solvent for carrying various substances within the blood. Then inside the plasma, you're going to also find plasma proteins. Examples of plasma proteins include albumin, fibrinogen, and immunoglobulins or antibodies. Immunoglobulins are also described as antibodies. Then you find some inorganic ions present like sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, chloride, and bicarbonate ions. Then you have other substances transported by the blood like organic nutrients like glucose, fatty acids, vitamins. You have urea. And then you have hormones also. Then you have respiratory gases. All these things are found inside the plasma. And then the cellular components, which constitute 45% of the blood volume, you have um, three categories of cells. You have red blood cells, which are also called erythrocytes. You have white blood cells, which are called leukocytes. And you have platelets, which are called thrombocytes. The most numerous of these are the red blood cells. Okay, so let's talk about red blood cells. Red blood cells, also called erythrocytes, are biconcave disc shape and they have a diameter of seven micrometers with a flexible membrane that enables them to bend through the tiny capillaries as blood is passing through the capillaries 
They contain large amounts of, of transport protein called hemoglobin, which binds to oxygen and transports the oxygen from the lungs to body tissues. Red blood cells do not have nucleus. They are described as non-nucleated. And this absence of nucleus provides adequate space for carrying large amounts of hemoglobin. They also lack mitochondria, which allows for more space to carry hemoglobin. And also the absence of mitochondria helps to ensure that the oxygen that is being transported is not used up for aerobic respiration. So those are the features of um, red blood cells. Inside red blood cells, you also find um, a special enzyme called carbonic anhydrase, which is essential for the formation of carbonic acid, a process, a reaction that is important for the transport of carbon dioxide from the body tissues to the lung. So you find carbonic anhydrase present inside red blood cells also. Now let's talk about leukocytes. Leukocytes um, are described as white blood cells. They are larger in size. They have nucleus, they have mitochondria, they have endoplasmic reticulum, and they usually have an irregular shape. So you have different types of leukocytes in the body. You have, they can broadly be divided into two. You have granulocytes and agranulocytes. The granulocytes are leukocytes that have granules within them, and you have neutrophils, basophils and eosinophils neutrophils they stain to neutral dyes basophils they straight they stain with um, basic dyes or alkaline dyes and then um, eosinophils they stain with acidic dyes and then aside from those granulocytes you have agranulocytes agranulocytes include monocytes and lymphocytes monocytes function as um, phagocytes they develop and become the mature and become macrophages which perform phagocytic functions within body tissues. And then lymphocytes can be divided into two parts. You have T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. I'm going to talk more about monocytes and lymphocytes in another chapter. Uh, that's a chapter that talks about um, immunity. Now let's look into another very important concept. Blood, tissue, fluid and lymph. Blood, tissue, fluid and lymph. What, are the relationship, what is the relationship between these three things? As blood flows through the capillaries, some solutes such as glucose, nutrients, plasma proteins, and waste products move out of the blood and form tissue fluid. This tissue fluid bats the cells of the body, and it's a similar in composition to the plasma, except that it has fewer plasma proteins. Large plasma proteins and red blood cells are not present inside the tissue fluid because they are too large to squeeze through the capillary pores. The tissue fluid is formed as a result of the high pressure of blood at the arterial end of the capillaries. And this pressure forces materials to move out of the blood. And as these materials move out of the blood, the movement of materials through the capillaries is slowed down, thus increasing um, solute concentration or causing water potential of the blood inside the capillaries to reduce. So that by the time the materials reach the venule hand, the pressure is low and water potential inside the blood is low within the capillaries and thus water moves from the tissue fluid back into the capillaries by osmosis. As water is moving, some materials will also move along. However, not all the materials in the tissue fluid environment will return into the capillaries. About 10% of the materials that moved out of the arterial end of the capillaries will not return back to the capillaries at the venule end. These materials are collected up and drained into blindly ending vessels called lymphatic vessels and they form lymph. The lymphatic vessels contain tiny valves which allow tissue fluid to flow in but stops it from leaking out. 
They also contained smooth muscles in their walls, which helped to push lymph further along. Lymph nodes are present at intervals, and they contain numerous white blood cells which secrete antibodies that fight infections. The lymphatic vessels join up to form larger lymph vessels, and they all empty their content into, into the subclavian vein, which carries everything into the vena cava. So blood passing through the capillaries forms tissue fluid, and then some of the components of tissue fluid will end up inside the lymphatic vessels to constitute lymph. So please note that. Now, let's talk about transport of oxygen. How is oxygen transported by the blood? Oxygen is transported by hemoglobin from the lungs to the respiring body tissues. As blood passes through the lungs, oxygen diffuses out of the alveolar air spaces of the lungs, which has a high oxygen partial pressure. Oxygen diffuses out of these alveolar air spaces through the walls of the alveolar sac into the alveolar capillaries and then into the red blood cells where it binds to hemoglobin. These red blood cells have low oxygen partial pressure. On entering the red blood cells, oxygen binds to the in-group of hemoglobin and forms oxyhemoglobin. One molecule of hemoglobin binds to four molecules of oxygen and thus the blood becomes oxygenated as it's passing through the lungs. So this process happens as blood is passing through the lungs. The blood that leaves the lungs returns back to the heart and then it is pumped out again by the heart the left ventricle of the heart into the aorta, which then distributes it to different vessels, different arteries in the body, which then transports this oxygenated blood to different tissues in the body. As blood is passing through these tissues, oxygen dissociates from hemoglobin and diffuses out of the red blood cells into the tissue fluid that bats the body cells. And then from the tissue fluid, it diffuses into those um, body cells. Now, there is a concept that we use to describe the process by which oxygen is released um, in the body tissues. It's called oxygen dissociation curve. Now, when you look at the oxygen dissociation curve, what is it? It's basically a simple graph that shows the changes in the percentage saturation of hemoglobin at different partial pressures of oxygen. So, on that graph, you have on, the, on our x-axis, you have the partial pressure of oxygen and on the y-axis you have percentage saturation of hemoglobin with oxygen and so when you look at the curve you see that the curve has a sigmoid shape and this sigmoid shape is physiologically important why the shape shows us that at low partial pressures of oxygen the percentage saturation of hemoglobin is low but at high partial pressures of oxygen the percentage saturation of hemoglobin is is high but the changes as percentage saturation increases, I mean, as, as um, partial pressure of oxygen increases, the percentage saturation of hemoglobin does not increase proportionately. Rather, it increases in a sigmoid manner, such that at pressures of 80, I mean, at pressures of 12 kilopascals, the percentage saturation is as high as 95, 96. But the rate pressure drops to about 10 or 8, the pressure, the percentage saturation is still quite high. It's still above 80. You get it. So what we're going to see about the graph is that if the percentage saturation of hemoglobin, first thing you need to note about the graph is this. If the percentage saturation of hemoglobin is 95%, it indicates that 95% of the hemoglobin that is in that sample of blood 
is fully occupied with 8% of oxygen atoms. So that's with the meaning of saturation, percentage saturation. Now, the structure of hemoglobin is such that when one oxygen binds to the heme group, the second, third, and fourth oxygen atoms can bind readily. This means that hemoglobin can quickly take up oxygen as it is passing through the lungs, which has high partial pressure of oxygen. However, it does not readily release its oxygen whenever it's passing through areas of high partial pressure or oxygen. Generally, in areas of low partial pressure of oxygen, any small change, any small reduction in partial pressure of oxygen results in a large change in the percentage saturation of hemoglobin. Why? Because in those areas of low partial pressure of oxygen, oxygen tends to dissociate from hemoglobin and it is then transported or diffuses, then diffuses into the body tissues. So this um, situation is beneficial because it allows quick and easy release of oxygen from oxyhemoglobin as blood is passing through respiratory tissues that have low partial pressures of um, oxygen. So the low partial pressure of oxygen in body tissues contributes to the release of oxygen from hemoglobin. Again, now, aside from that, Another factor that contributes to the release of hemoglobin of oxygen from oxyhemoglobin is the concentration of carbon dioxide in the body tissues. This effect that carbon dioxide has is described as the Bohr effect. It's called the Bohr effect. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. The partial pressure of carbon dioxide in a particular body tissue can affect the quantity of oxygen that remains bound to hemoglobin, and thus it can affect the position of the oxygen dissociation curve. This effect of carbon dioxide on hemoglobin is due to the formation of hydrogen ions when carbon dioxide combines with water to form carbonic acid, which then dissociates into hydrogen ions and hydrogen carbonate ions. The hydrogen ions combine with hemoglobin to form hemoglobinic acid, and once this happens, oxygen is released from oxyhemoglobin. In this way, hemoglobin acts as a buffer and prevents hydrogen ions from lowering the pH of blood and which may lead to adverse health conditions. Also, high levels of carbon dioxide in the blood causes the oxygen dissociation curve to shift to the right. So when the oxygen dissociation curve shifts to the right, what that means is that what? Oxygen can readily be released. Oxygen is readily being released from oxyhemoglobin. However, when partial pressure of, ox of carbon dioxide in body tissues is low, the oxygen dissociation curve shifts to the left shift to the left meaning that what oxyhemoglobin will hold tightly to its what to its oxygen now how is carbon dioxide transported in the body as blood passes through the respiring tissues carbon dioxide diffuses out of the blood cells into the surrounding tissues tissue fluid and then into the blood which transports it to the lungs at the lungs carbon dioxide diffuses out of the blood into the alveolar air spaces and then it is expired carbon dioxide is transported in three forms by the blood it can be transported as hydrogen carbonate ions 85 percent of carbon dioxide is transported that way it can be transported combined with terminal amine groups of hemoglobin to form carb amino hemoglobin then it can be transported dissolved in plasma water about five percent is transported that way so those are the methods by which carbon dioxide is transported around the body and let's talk about something called carbon monoxide. How carbon monoxide affects the cardiovascular system. Carbon monoxide is a poisonous gas that readily combines with hemoglobin to form carboxyhemoglobin. 
And once carboxyhemoglobin is formed, it prevents the binding of oxygen to hemoglobin and thus prevents the formation of oxyhemoglobin. And this leads to a reduction in the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. Carbon monoxide has high affinity for hemoglobin. And a low concentration of this gas can cause a large quantity of hemoglobin to become unavailable for the transport of oxygen. Also, carboxyhemoglobin is a stable compound, and carbon monoxide can stay combined with hemoglobin for a very long time. So, carbon monoxide has adverse effects on the transport of um, oxygen around the body because it binds strongly to um, hemoglobin. Now, let's talk about something else. How does the body adapt for survival? at high altitude adaptation for survival at high altitude the earth is surrounded by an atmosphere of gases and it is designed such that as you move away from the earth's surface higher into the atmosphere atmospheric pressure reduces and as a result the partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere is also going to reduce however the quantity of oxygen transported to the body to use from the lungs needs to be maintained so as to ensure that the individual remains um, healthy and active. This quantity of oxygen transport is affected by two factors. The first factor is the quantity of red blood cells circulating in the lungs, and the second factor is the partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere. So the higher you move above sea level, the lower the atmospheric pressure gets. Thus, in areas that are situated in highly mountainous regions, atmospheric pressure is low, and as a result, there's a tendency for the quantity of oxygen being supplied to the body tissues of mammals to be reduced. This low partial pressure stimulates production of more hemoglobin and more red blood cells by the bone marrow, and it, this leads to an increase in red blood cell count. This increase in the quantity of red blood cells in the blood therefore allows for more oxygen to be transported from the lungs to the body tissues and thus compensates for the low partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere. So red blood cell count will increase in individuals with, uh, that move to high altitude so as to adapt for the low partial pressure of oxygen um, in, in those high altitudes. Other things that may increase include breathing rate or tidal volume. Get. Capillary density may also increase. The number of mitochondria present in respiratory tissues may also increase. Everything to what to help the body to adapt to the changes in environmental conditions. Another thing that can be observed is increased secretion of very true poetin. That's the hormone that is responsible for stimulating production of more um, red blood cells. So those are the adaptations that occur when an individual moves to an area of high altitude. Now let's talk about the final part, which is the heart. The heart. What is the structure of the heart? The mammalian heart is a muscular pumping organ that is made up of cardiac muscle tissue. It is divided into four chambers. Four chambers. Two on the left, separated by septum from two chambers on the right. The upper and lower chambers are connected to each other by valves. The tricuspid valve is located on the right and the bicuspid valve is located on the left. They are both referred to as atrioventricular valves, atrioventricular valves. So aside from those two valves, we also have some valves in other parts of the heart. Now the four chambers of the heart are connected to four blood vessels. The right atrium is connected to the vena cava, which brings deoxygenated blood from the body tissues into the heart. Then the right ventricle is connected to the pulmonary artery, which transports deoxygenated blood from the heart to the lungs. 
The left atrium has a pulmonary vein connected to it which brings in oxygenated blood from the lungs to the heart. And then left ventricle has the aorta connected to it which transports oxygenated blood to the body tissues from the heart. So the heart has a collection of arteries which form a, from a branch of the aorta and branches into the right and left sides of the heart to supply oxygenated blood to the heart and muscle tissues. These arteries are called coronary arteries. The coronary arteries. The walls of the ventricles are thicker than the walls of the atria. This is important because the atria just pumps blood into the ventricles, which is nearby, which are nearby. Whereas the ventricles pump blood out of the heart, which is a greater distance and requires um, greater force to overcome and the greater resistance. When you compare the two ventricles, the left ventricle is thicker than the right ventricle. And this is because the left ventricle pumps blood into the systemic circulation that is into all the body tissues. Whereas the right ventricle pumps blood into the pulmonary circulation, which is the lungs, which is closer to the heart and has um, um, lower resistance compared to systemic circulation. So the right ventricle pumps blood into the lungs and requires um, lesser force compared to the left ventricle, which pumps blood over a greater distance. Aside from the atrioventricular valves, other valves present are found in the aorta and the pulmonary vein and these valves help to prevent the backflow of blood from the aorta and the pulmonary artery and from the so aside from the atrioventricular valves valves are also present in the aorta in the pulmonary vein in the pulmonary artery and in the vena cava these valves help to prevent the backflow of blood from the aorta and pulmonary artery into the right and left ventricle during ventricular diastole the valves also have to prevent the backflow of blood into the vena cava and the pulmonary vein when um, atrial systole takes place, when the atria contract. So you have valves, that's about six valves present in the heart. You have the atrioventricular valves, two of them. Then you have semilunar valves in the aorta and pulmonary artery. And you have semilunar valves inside the vena cava and the pulmonary vein. Now let's talk about cardiac cycle. Cardiac cycle. The cardiac cycle refers to the series of events that occur in the heart during the transport of blood from the heart to other parts of the body. It is divided commonly into four stages, diastole, two diastole stages, and two systole stages. Diastole refers to relaxation, systole refers to contraction. Each cardiac cycle at rest lasts for about 0.8 seconds, and during a cycle, two heart sounds are produced. These two heart sounds contribute, constitute one heartbeat. The two heart sounds constitute one heartbeat. So if one cycle lasts for about 0.8 seconds, in one minute, the heart will beat for an average of 70 times. Now, let's talk about the cycle in detail. The first thing we're going to look at is atrial diastole. What happens during atrial diastole? During this stage, the walls of the atria are relaxed. The walls of the atria are relaxed. Number two, blood flows from the vena cava and pulmonary vein into the atria. Number three, volume of the blood in the atria increases. And as volume is increasing, pressure is also increasing. Okay, as blood is flowing into the atria, some blood will eventually start to leak into the ventricle. So pressure inside the ventricle will be rising slightly also. Okay, so during a chassis diastole also, the ventricular valves are slightly open. So some blood will leak into the ventricles as the atria fills up with 
blood. So those are the events that occurred during atrial diastole. And after atrial diastole, the next thing that happens is atrial systole. During atrial systole, the atrial contracts and pumps blood into the ventricles. Pressure rises sharply in the atrial walls and the atrioventricular valves open to allow blood to flow from the atria into the ventricles and the volume of blood in the atria reduces. After atrial systole is ventricular systole. During ventricular systole, the ventricles contract, pressure rises sharply in them and thus blood flows from the ventricle into the aorta from the ventricles into the aorta and pulmonary artery flow. So blood flows from the left ventricle into the aorta and from the right ventricle into the pulmonary artery. This pressure rise causes the atrioventricular valves to close so as to prevent backflow of blood from the ventricles into the atria. And this closure of the atrioventricular valve produces the first heart sound. So after ventricular systole is ventricular diastole. During this stage, the walls of the ventricles are relaxed blood is flowing outward away from the aorta and pulmonary artery the subliminal valves in the aorta and pulmonary artery are closed so as to prevent the backflow of blood into the ventricles and this closure produces the second heart sound pressure increases sharply initially in the large arteries and then the pressure reduces sharply so the pressure in the ventricles fall sharply during this period also pressure inside the atria falls initially and then it begins to increase steadily as the atria begins to fill with blood. And so atrial systole begins shortly after ventricular diastole. Atrial diastole, sorry. Atrial diastole begins shortly after ventricular diastole begins. So those are the four stages of the cardiac cycle. So it's important for you to get the graphs and study the graphs carefully and know when the um, valves open and when they close and know the pressure changes that occur from the graphs. Now let's talk about something else. This is like the final part. How is this cardiac cycle coordinated? How is it coordinated? It's coordinated by a collection of tissues that constitutes what is known as the cardiac conduction system. Now, to lay a foundation, let's say this, let's note this. The heart muscle tissues are described as myogenic. In other words, they are able to initiate their own contraction, independent of stimulation by the nervous system. But then you have some special tissues within the heart that coordinate the process of contraction and relaxation of the heart. So these tissues include sinoatrial node, and then you have the atrioventricular node, then you have the bundle of this, and then you have the porcine tissue. The sinoatrial node is located at the junction where the vena cava meets with the right atrium and it serves as the pacemaker it gets depolarized as blood is entering into the right ventricle and once it gets depolarized it generates a nerve impulse an electrical impulse that is transmitted to the atrial fibers and then to the avian once these impulses are transmitted to the atrial fibers the atrial fibers will contract and atrial systole occurs and then the impulse will also be transmitted to the atrioventricular node which is located within the septum between the right and left atrium. So at the atrioventricular node, there is a delay of 0.05 seconds at the AVM. And this delay is important because it allows the atria to contract before the ventricles contract. So there is a delay of 0.05 seconds. And then after that delay, that period of 0.05 seconds, the AVN will then transmit the impulse to the bundle of his. So the bundle of his is a branch of tissue that branches off the AVN and 
transmits impulses from the AVN to the porcine tissue. So the porcine tissue is a collection of various tissues that receives impulses from the bundle of yeast and then transmits the impulse to the ventricular fibers. So the porcine tissue stimulates the ventricular fibers and the ventricular fibers contract right from the apex of the heart upwards so as to squeeze out blood right from the base, from the apex of the heart, squeeze the blood outwards from the ventricles, out into the aorta and into the pulmonary artery. So all these tissues, all these structures are involved in coordinating and initiating and coordinating attraction. The SAN, the AVN, the bundle of his and the pocan tissue. Now, I want you to note this as I round up. There is a bundle of non-conducting fiber that separates the atria from the ventricles and it helps to prevent impulses from just jumping from the atria into the ventricles. So for the ventricles to be stimulated, impulses can only pass through the AVN. That non-conductive fiber prevents the jumping of impulse just anyhow. So impulses can only pass through the AVN to go to the bundle of ease and then from the bundle of ease it goes to the porcine tissue. Thank you very much.